Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. This episode is going to be all about heroes, from sporting legends to literary giants, singer-songwriters to fictional characters. If you're short on inspiration for Father's Day, then we'll hopefully provide a helping hand. Or if you just want to hear about some pretty amazing people, then stay tuned because we have a brilliant lineup for you, including my exciting interview with the Brownlee Triathlon Brothers, an extract from the audiobook edition of Neil Young's Waging Heavy Peace, a reading of A Delicate Truth from John le Carre, and finally, we have another hero from the music industry, Karis Matthews. So first up, we have the Brownlee Brothers. Alistair and Jonathan are two self-titled skinny lads from Yorkshire whose love of the outdoors and competitive spirit led them into triathlon from an early age. Their brutal training schedule of running, cycling and swimming over 35 hours a week in the often bitterly cold and windswept local countryside has made them the toughest and most dominant force in world triathlon. And last year, all of their hard work paid off with a gold and a bronze medal for Team GB in the London 2012 Olympic Games. The Brownleys are two of my ultimate sporting heroes, and as such, I was extremely excited to meet them after their book signing at Waterstones for their new book, Swim, Bike, Run, when I managed to grab a quick interview to talk about their training, their successes, and their plans for the future. It's fair to say I was pretty starstruck, so take a listen and see how well I managed to keep my cool. Hello, I'm here with the Brownlee brothers um, to talk about their new book, Swim, Bike, Run. Um, first of all, just to say congratulations to Johnny on your win in Madrid yesterday. How did that feel? It was great. Uh, Madrid's a, a good course. I like racing there. And yeah, it, it's good to win, obviously, after the Olympics last year. It's nice to come back and, and carry on winning. Um, and it's the second race I won this year, so I was, I was really, really pleased. I'm a bit tired now, but I'm okay. Second consecutive race, wasn't it? It was um, the one in Japan just yeah, before. Yeah, in, in Yokohama about three weeks before. So it's nice to keep on winning after the Olympics because... It was I had a quite busy year, obviously after London, so it's nice to know that I'm I'm still quite fit. Yeah. Did you have um a bit of an injury towards the beginning of the year? Do you think you might not be able to race? Yeah, well, I, I hurt my ankle okay. in like January time, and I went through a stage of getting told I'm I'm gonna need surgery. I didn't need surgery. I wasn't gonna race. I was gonna race, and then so eventually to be able to race in Yokohama was great, and then to be able to, be able to race in Madrid again was was even better. So. It's all going quite well now, which is nice. Oh, good, good. Um, speaking of ankle injuries, something you've experienced as well, Alistair. Um, do you tend to find that you coordinate in your injuries? <laughs> uh, sometimes, yeah. We have had some very similar injuries in the past. I just seem to get them a lot more often and a lot worse. Mm. <laughs> so, Did you have um, any over the winter at all? Or was uh, that... Not really. I had a little bit of a knee niggle, uh, which it was an injury, I suppose, but for me it was uh, just a, a step, an easy step. But yeah, this ankle injury seems to be lingering around a bit more. How is it feeling now? Uh, it's okay, uh, but it's just a case to kind of resting it and hoping it gets better at the moment. Um, being patient, which isn't my forte. <laughs> what kind of um, training can you do while you're injured with something like an ankle injury? Uh, well, it depends exactly on what's wrong. Um, at the moment, I'm just not doing any running at all, just to try and rest it and make it better. And I had a period of a uh, couple of weeks ago not doing anything, just to try and get it better completely. Um, but it, it's just kind of playing it by ear and seeing what works and what doesn't really. Yeah, do you just spend your time on video games and yeah, pretty much. chilling out on the sofa? Reading, <laughs> <laughs> actually. Yeah. Um, I read in your book, actually, that you were saying that basically triathletes are either tired or hungry all of the time. Mm-hmm. Is that... Well, do you agree? Yeah, pretty much. Well, triathlon involves 35 hours of training, so it's a lot of training. And then if you're not training hard, you know me, eating or sitting down, doing nothing. Yeah. Um, people always ask us what we do in between. When we're not training, the answer is not a lot, really. <laughs> Um, like I enjoy watching films and things and, and eating but we don't have a lot of free time yeah it's very structured isn't it your training 
Yeah, it's very, it's very structured and very long. You know, I get up yeah. in the morning at 6.30 and go swimming at 7 and then you get get back and you go out for a run and sleep and then cycle. So there's not a lot of time in between and, and that's taken up with, with eating. Yeah, and Alistair, you're not quite as good at getting up in the mornings, is that right? No, I'm not, no. Uh, Johnny's definitely the one who's very much about the structure and the motivation of doing it like that. Um, I do a lot of it for the enjoyment and the love of it, and so when things are kind of I don't want to do them, I find it a lot harder, I think, to motivate myself to do it, and I hate getting up in the morning. <laughs> and remember from your book, um, you were talking about possibly the future of both of you in triathlon. If you're saying that you know it really is the enjoyment of the sport that, that encourages you, do you think that's more to do with the competitive element, or is it... For you, Johnny, you quite like the you know the structure of the training and ticking things off, for example. Mm. What is it that would motivate you to kind of continue to participate in sport, even if you weren't at the highest level, do you think? Uh, at the moment, well, when I'm not at the highest level, um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be literally just doing it. I could see myself being, I don't know, 60 years old and just riding to the cafe every day with my mates and uh, probably having a race to a sign or something. <laughs> not being massively bothered, but just being outside and active and enjoying it like that. Um, I think I'd probably always be involved in maybe a bit of local racing, you know, doing a bit of foul running and stuff like that. And that's what I'd love to be able to do, really. Yeah. Um, but who knows? I remember um, you told a story about um, one of the persons, people, sorry, who were really um, influential when you were younger, um, Dave Whitted from the mm -hmm. fell runs. And the bunny runs sounded particularly fun. Mm. Um, and don't you, Alistair, have a 50 quid bet to win one of them before yeah, 2014? Yeah, next year, yeah, I think. Um, <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> uh, well, I do get the chance to do one this year, because as well as away uh, in America, that whole time when I was away in America, so... One more year. Yeah, I've got next year, I'm going to have to squeeze one in somewhere. <laughs> Is it more about the pride than anything else? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> I like the sound of the old Lang Syne one on New Year's. Is it New Year's Eve or New Year's Day? New Year's, New Year's Eve, Eve is yeah. great. You so basically start in a quarry and you go up onto the hills and it's beautiful. It's been really cold before and mm. oh, it's always it's always either freezing or raining there, but it's nice to go and it's a fun race to do. Yeah, it's a fantastic kind of uh, just all about it. You know, it, it's a tradition and it's fantastic. Cold seems to be a bit of a theme in the book as well, especially when you're talking about your training. Yeah, well, we train in Yorkshire and there's no escaping the cold there and. We love training outside, so we're not one of these people who can sit on the inside trainer, you know, the turbo trainer inside and cycle inside. We have to be outside, yeah. and that involves getting cold. And we, one of the things we do, we stay around in Yorkshire quite a lot. We don't like to go away to Australia or South Africa like other triathletes do. We, we like staying at home, so if you do that, you've got to accept to put up with the cold, but yeah. I'm getting worse at that every year. <laughs> <laughs> How much do you think that kind of environment that you grew up in influenced it I mean obviously it did massively but do you think it just afforded you a lot more opportunities to get outside and I think so I think the environment was very important to both of us um, especially just the love of being outside I think was a, a driving force to get us out cycling going on rides when we were younger and get, get us out running and I think that really was a, a kind of a driving force to be outside and active and before competitive sport became you know too serious or anything just that enjoyment from being outside I think was very very important yeah um, and you just mentioned there about um, the, the fact that you still train in West Yorkshire and haven't moved anywhere else. Um, and you do mention in the book that you were asked, was it to move to Loughborough um, to be kind of closer to the facilities there? And you decided not to do that. Um, but there were a couple of other athletes who I remember hearing about, like Mo Farah mm -hmm. and Jess Ennis, who were asked to move to either London or somewhere else. Um, but you feel that it's the right decision for you to stay with what you know. Yeah, yeah athletes got to be happy. Yeah. That's the end of the day. And one of the things that we say and talk about the book, is we want to be responsible for our training mm. and for our choices that we make. We don't want to be on the start line of a race thinking, 
or someone told me to go to Loughborough, so it's kind of their fault if I don't do well. Yeah. Whereas we very much want to be, it's out, it's up to us. If I mess up my race, it's my fault. Mm. It's all down to me, and we kind of chose that decision. And one of the reasons why we do sport is because we absolutely love, love training outside, and we couldn't have done that so much somewhere else apart from Yorkshire. Yeah. Um, so, talking about the Olympics, which I'm sure everyone reading the book will be dying to get to that part, which you cleverly saved to the end, hmm. obviously. Um, so, Alistair, you had the Achilles injury just beforehand, um, and you might have been quite nervous about whether you were going to be fit for there, but you, the race that's just coming up soon in Kitzbühel, you managed to, to win, didn't you? Yeah, that was a, a big, big point for me. Um, obviously, it was very stressful for that last year. I had a, a shocking injury, you know, and Achilles injuries can be absolutely horrific, mm. so... Um, and recovering from that and I really didn't know how fit I was getting and I was training as absolutely as hard as I could but I had a massive gap in my winter training and obviously you want everything to be perfect in the lead up to the Olympics you know I think most athletes would get stressed if they missed a day training in that year yeah. and I missed months so um, yeah and then I raced in kickball and everything went fantastically so yeah, that was a big big day for me but, you know probably you know not quite as important as the Olympics but you know right up there last year yeah and great timing just to measure that before the olympics I yeah well it wasn't it was luck really, in a lot of ways <laughs> i mean there's not really a lot i could have done about it if something had gone wrong yeah in those weeks um i was absolutely if anything had gone wrong i think i would have been in trouble but fortunately everything went right mm. and something i didn't realize actually until i read the book was that you had um another british triathlete stuart hayes was acting as a domestique mm. um how much did that kind of help you in the cycle and swim uh, during the race itself, it helped a lot. Mm. The fact that someone's looking out for you, he shelters you from the wind, which saves a bit of energy because triathlons an efficiency sport. Yeah. You get to the run as as, as 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 fresh as you can. But one of the main ways it did actually help is we went into the race uh, as a team. We trained together for the best part of two months together as a team. You know, uh, we lived together, um, we'd eat together, we'd been on a camp together, and it was nice to go through. The whole journey together as a team and we turned up to the race as a team and it made it a lot easier for us all um the fact that we were in it together you know no one was trying to get one over each other we were just there together as a unit yeah uh, but the actual race itself obviously he helped massively as well and Stu was a great character he was perfect for it he was he was fun uh a safety shoe we called him <laughs> he, he stopped us getting into trouble uh, when we we're out in our training camp stopped us training too hard made sure all the little things were good as well you know what we ate using hand wash just to, to stop getting ill, that kind of thing. So he's a great guy to have around. And you mentioned that um, you definitely feel that you need each other to push yourselves in those kind of races, and it seemed like the perfect situation when you were both together in the Olympics. Have you kind of always used each other in, in that way? Yeah, I think, well, that, the, there's two different ways of looking at it. I think the first way is in training, you know, when we're both training hard and we're both doing a session and push each other as hard as we can. I think that's very, very important. Um, for both of us, uh, probably a little bit more important for Johnny, but you know, pushing each other on all the time. Um, and then in racing, it's not necessarily pushing each other, it's more working together. So mm. what can we do to have a tactical advantage on the rest of the competition? And I think that's that's the bigger factor in racing. Is it more that you would understand each other's style or that you would plan it beforehand? Uh, not plan it beforehand, just that we know tactically, you know, that we can work together on the bike and push it here and not push it there. And when two of you working, it's a lot better than just one of you working and on the run you know, say take 500 metres each or a kilometre each and, and push it on. Um, all those little bits that tactically uh, we can, we've got slight an advantage because two of us are working together and it's kind of both in our best interests to, to work together like that. So uh, that's kind of a massive advantage we've got over all the competition. Mm, I'm sure Gomez um, doesn't particularly like that part of it. <laughs> no, I don't think he does. Often, quite often it is in his interest as well, to be fair. So when we're pushing the bike, he likes the bike to be pushed as well, so it pulls him away. So it is quite often in his advantage and 
And we never really used kind of nasty tactics that could slow him down either. Yeah, and he seems to still be your main rival for years now. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think he's a phenomenal athlete. And I think, you know, triathlon's probably changed quite a lot over the last four or five years. And still, when he when it counts, he seems to be able to step up and uh, have a race that's far better than a lot of the other races he has. He's really phenomenal at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you ended up with your, your gold and your bronze. It all did could definitely come across in the book like as you said before such a whirlwind and you know how much you remember of it was must have been hard to kind of pin down when you were writing that in the book yeah it was actually nice to sit down and and, mm. and talk about it and write about it because um going into the olympics and after olympics it all happened so quick and mm. writing the book was actually the first time we, we really talked about it together we try to do a lot of it at the time so yeah. Yeah. quite a lot of it is at the time two months before the olympics or just after the kids pool or uh, or when I was injured, so that, you know, it's right, it was there and then. And I think that's really, you know, it's a good way to do it because you captured the moment and, you know, that moment, it might be completely different now a year later, but at the time, you know, you, you capture what was going through your head and stuff. And so it works out as quite a nice kind of log as well. Yeah, it must be. Um, and just to quickly note, there are quite a few funny parts of the book. Um, I think my personal favourite was when um, you were racing together and you took um, Johnny's bike by accident. Oh, yeah. Um, and the quote that was put in there from what you said to him was quite funny if you can remember what it is. That's a swearing problem. It was. <laughs> Maybe I'll not mention it now. I'll leave that to people to read. Um, that so was a nightmare though. I said I'll forgive you. Because <laughs> the bike was the wrong size and the shoes Well it's alright for him because he, he's told me so obviously if you get on a bike which is smaller you're alright. Yeah, back Well I couldn't even reach the pedals. <laughs> So a couple of final questions before we finish. Um, just on training, because you include lots of sections in the book, obviously three sections, swim, bike, run, on kind of tips on how to improve or you know why you train like you do. Um, so one thing, as you've, we've been talking about injury, how, what would be your advice for someone to kind of stay motivated when they've been injured and how to get back into training? What I think it's very difficult when you're injured. I think like anything, when you're injured or not, you probably have to set yourself a goal. So... Uh, I want to do this race in eight weeks' time, and you know, this is how I'm going to do it. So at the end of this week, I want to achieve this, and at the end of next week, I want to achieve that. So it's breaking it down all the time. You know, if you think I just want to get fit, or I've got a race in two years' time, I think that's very difficult to motivate yourself. But if you got closer and smaller aims, I think it's a, a lot easier. Yeah. Okay. Um. And one final one from uh, this question is from Lucy. She said, "Would you ever consider moving up to Ironman distances?" Yeah, definitely. I want to do it in the future. Yeah, Ironman is a, a great side of the sport that I definitely like to experience, but not for a while. Um, with his Rio twenty sixteen, obviously, mm. is a big aim, and maybe in a it may be in a, in a few years time, maybe when I hit thirty or something like that, I'll go into Ironman. Isn't that more the peak age for Ironman anyway? In your definitely thirties, mid late to well, probably early thirties really is the the perfect time to do it. But uh, yeah, it's a completely different side of the sport, but something I'll definitely do in the future. Yeah, good. Okay. Um. Well. Good luck with the rest of the World Series um, and then Rio and possibly Ironman. Thanks very much. Exclusive, thank you. Thanks again to Alistair and Johnny for taking time out of their busy schedule to chat to me. Best of luck for Kitzbühel, boys. Next up, we have an extract from the audiobook edition of Neil Young's Waging Heavy Peace, read by the actor Keith Carradine. Neil Young is a singular figure in the history of rock and pop culture in the last four decades, inducted not once but twice into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's a musical hero, an inspiration to many, and he's adored by dads the world over. This Sunday. So here's an extract on the songwriting process. Have you ever wondered what goes into writing a song? I wish I could tell you the exact ingredients, but there is nothing specific that comes to mind. 
It seems to me that songs are a product of experience and a cosmic alignment of circumstance. That is, who you are and how you feel at a certain time. I've written a lot of songs. Some of them suck. Some of them are brilliant. And some are just okay. Those are all other people's opinions. To me, they are like children. They are born and raised and sent out into the world to fend for themselves. It's not an easy place to be, the world, for a song. You might find yourself on a tape in the garbage or on a CD someone threw out, or you may even be in the bargain bin. You may be a forgotten song languishing on a vinyl record in the dump or, more hopefully, in an independent record store rack. In one of the worst cases, you may be relegated to being nothing more than another MP3 file with less than 5% of your original sound. However, someone had to create you, and that is our subject for now. I have not written one song since I stopped smoking weed in January 2011, so we are currently in the midst of a great chemical experiment. When I write a song, it starts with a feeling. I can hear something in my head or feel it in my heart. It may be that I just picked up the guitar and mindlessly started playing. That's the way a lot of songs begin. When you do that, you are not thinking. Thinking is the worst thing for writing a song. So you just start playing and something new comes out. Where does it come from? Who cares? Just keep it and go with it. That's what I do. I never judge it. I believe it. It came as a gift when I picked up my musical instrument, and it came through me playing with the instrument. The chords and melody just appeared. Now is not the time for interrogation or analysis. Now is the time to get to know the song, not change it before you even know it. It is like a wild animal, a living thing. Be careful not to scare it away. That's my method, or one of my methods at least. I was just thinking that I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself to write a song. That never works. Songs are like rabbits, and they like to come out of their holes when you're not looking. So if you stand there waiting, they will just burrow down and come out somewhere far away, a new place where you can't see them. So I feel like I'm standing over a song hole. That will never result in success. From a musical hero to a literary legend, now we have John McCary reading an extract from his latest book, A Delicate Truth. Think money, mercenaries and British intelligence. It's a furiously paced, fabulously told story of moral dilemma, bold action and unexpected love. This passage comes down the line in the story when Toby Bell, having worked for a while for his minister, comes to the conclusion that a conspiracy is being formed all around him and he's not being admitted to it and he fears that the conspiracy is unofficial and possibly catastrophic. And he goes to his mentor, who is a Mandarin in the Foreign Office, and this is the conversation they have as they're walking along the embankment. Oakley, a wise old bird, giving nothing away. And you heard all this how? Oakley inquired conversationally. They were strolling along the Thames embankment. Chattering girls in skirts flounced past them, arm in arm. The evening traffic was a stampede, but Toby was hearing nothing but his own too strident voice and Oakley's relaxed interjections. He had tried to look him in the eye and failed. The famous Oakley pebble jaw was set tight Let's just say I picked it up in bits, Toby said impatiently. What does it matter? 
a file Quinn left lying about. Things I overheard him whispering on the phone. You instructed me to tell you if I heard anything, Giles. Now I'm telling you. Uh, I, I instructed you when, exactly, dear man? At your house, Schloss Oakley, after a dinner discussing alpacas, remember? You asked me to stick around for a Calvados. I did. Giles, what the fuck is this? Odd. I have no memory of any such conversation. If it took place, which I dispute, then it was surely private, alcohol-induced, and not in any circumstance for quotation. Giles! But this was Oakley's official voice, speaking for the record, and Oakley's official face, not a muscle moving. The further suggestion that your minister, who I understand to have spent a relaxing and well-deserved weekend in his recently acquired Cotswold mansion in the company of close friends, was engaged in promoting a harebrained covert operation on the shores of a sovereign British colony, wait, is both slanderous and disloyal. I suggest you abandon it. Giles, I don't believe I'm hearing this. Giles! Grabbing Oakley's arm, he drew him into a recess in the railing. Oakley looked down icily at Toby's hand and then, with his own, gently removed it. You are mistaken, Toby. Were such an operation to have occurred, do you not imagine that our intelligence services ever alert to the danger of private armies going off the reservation? would have advised me. They did not so advise me. Therefore, it has manifestly not occurred. You mean the spies don't know? Or are they deliberately looking the other way? Thoughts of Matty's phone call. What are you telling me, Giles? Oakley had found a spot for his forearms and was straining forward as if to relish the bustling river scene but his voice remained as lifeless as if he were reading from a position paper. I am telling you, with all the emphasis at my command, that there is nothing for you to know. There was nothing to know, and there never will be anything to know, outside the fantasies of your heat-oppressed brain. Keep it for your novel, and get on with your career. Giles, Toby pleaded, as if in a dream. But Oakley's features, cost him what it might, remained rigidly, almost passionately, in denial. A Delicate Truth is available as hardback, ebook, and an audiobook, read by John LeCarry himself. Now we have another hero from the music industry, Keris Matthews, whose new book, Hook, Line and Singer, is a collection of traditional and contemporary sing-along songs, perfect for having a good warble any time or place. Life is better with a soundtrack, we think. And what better way to say, Dad, you're great, than with a song. So here's Keris, talking about her literary hero. There's even a song. The one that always comes to mind, apart from Bob Dylan, who I know is a musician, but he has amazing lyrics that, that have always inspired me since a young age, so that's quite a, a good way into literature in a way. Um, Dylan Thomas, so there's a little connection there as well. Um, I really got into him and later, quite late on in life I was pregnant and I found a little child's Christmas on, on a tree and I just read it and I just couldn't believe how amazing it was and how this 
young chap from my town where I was brought up, Swansea, has this voice and this way of speaking, even though he's, he writes in the local dialect, he has this universal voice that touches everybody. And the thing is what he does is, is he loves humans, he loves the flaws, he loves the differences in all of us, he, and, and he writes so beautifully, so he has this just tremendous voice that, that has so much music in it as well. Um, and so since then I've just become a complete addict and I've become part of the um, the judges for the prize for Dylan Thomas for young novelists as well. So that's a real thrill to be part of that. Uh, and I'm also one of the patrons to the Dylan Thomas Society. Um, and, and moreover, something I'm very proud of, it's my uncle Colin Edwards that collected all of the um, hours and hours of interviews that... Um, were made in the 1960s with members of Dylan Thomas's family, including his mum and um, his sister, and all the people that ever got in contact with um, Dylan Thomas. And those are the interviews that have informed all the biographies since then, the big biographies, the Americans and all sorts. So, um, you know, just just to be so proud of my uncle for doing that, and then to 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 find that love of the same poet and and writer is, is just it feels good. Gone. Gonna lay down my sword and shield Down by the riverside And when you're at home you can go Where? Down by the riverside I say where? Down by the riverside I'm gonna lay down my sword and shield Where? Down by the riverside I'm gonna study one no more Ain't gonna study one no more Gonna study one no more Study one no What's that? Two chords, so two shapes on the guitar. It'll be two shapes on the ukulele, or you can play with your one finger on the piano as well. It's really that simple. And then you can put harmonies on it, or get your children to sing harmonies, or your dad. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.